I'm Vivian Wang, co-founder of Wiser, and I'm here with Amanda Flaubert, a current first-year vascular fellow at Emory University, who has helped us co-host Wiser interviews in the past. We also have our Wiser High School intern with us, who has been helping us with graphic design and fundraising this year, Virginia Wang. Welcome back, Amanda, and welcome, Virginia. Today we have a special interview in collaboration with Audible Bleeding, which is an educational podcast powered by the SBS or the Society for Vascular Surgeons. This podcast is designed for vascular surgeons, trainees, and medical students alike. Our guest is Dr. Shipra Arya, an associate professor of surgery at the Stanford University School of Medicine and section chief of vascular surgery at the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System. We previously had the honor of knowing her while she was a faculty member at Emory University. Dr. Arya completed her medical education at the All India Institute of Medical Sciences, followed by general surgery residency at Creighton University, then did her vascular surgery fellowship at the University of Michigan. Go Blue! She also completed a master's in epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health. She is well known for her research in frailty in the surgical population, which we are very excited to discuss with her today. Can you tell us about where you grew up and your educational background? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I grew up in India, so I'm a first-generation immigrant. I grew up mostly in New Delhi. I did most of my education there. I always knew I wanted to be a surgeon. And through my medical training, I realized that I, I may need to go to the United States to be taken seriously as a woman in surgery <laughs> uh, rather than continuing training in India. So I, I decided that I'm going to apply for residencies in the United States. And that time, I got introduced to Dr. Anup Mishra, who was my first mentor in research. He was a internal medicine doc, really renowned figure in diabetes and metabolic uh, syndrome research. I, I always had a bent for a combination of public health combined with uh, medicine that we need to be able to do good for the most if you want to be effective at controlling disease and treating disease. So that's how I got interested in research and then came to the U.S. first at Harvard School of Public Health, and then I went on to do residency and fellowship. Was anybody in your family in medicine? There was nobody in my family in medicine growing up, but my parents were really interested that their daughters become doctors. I have two other sisters. I'm a middle child. Uh, my elder sister was the first person in our entire extended family to be a doctor. So she got into med school and she would bring all these bones home for anatomy class and her anatomy textbooks. I would look at them and I was like, this is so cool. This is what I want to do. And I want to be a surgeon because I always thought of things creatively. I like to do things with my hands. And when I first joined med school, our school was really competitive to get in. I think around 60,000 people sit for one exam on one date in a year and they only took 35 people. So you go in and everybody knows your rank. I remember I was ranked number 23 and that's how people talk to me. Oh, you're, you're ranked 23. And everything was about marks and scores and academics. Like there was no push for thinking about things holistically or what you want to be as a person. And so when I would say that I want to be a surgeon, they're like, good luck with that. You're middle of the pack. You're, you, <laughs> you need to do better. And there, there's been no women in the entire history of our medical school who've gone into surgery. It, it was pretty demoralizing, but at the same time, it strengthened my resolve that so what? If there hasn't been one before, that doesn't mean there can't be one now. What did your parents think when you told them you wanted to be a, a surgeon? 
I don't know if they knew what I was getting into because they didn't know anybody in medicine or surgery, but they've always supported me. They're pretty progressive for their time. Growing up, I would be part of conversations where my relatives or people around me would tell my parents that you should be saving money for their dowry. Like, why are you educating these girls? Who's going to marry them if they get too educated? You wouldn't find suitable matches. And they were like, we just want to invest in their education and they'll figure their path out. My elder sister became a pediatrician. I came to the States and became a surgeon. My younger sister actually went into the Indian Air Force and she was a pilot. And now she's finished her uh, short service commission and she's working with a startup. That's incredible. Um, just in hearing the statistics, we're not allowed to complain about the MCAT any longer because I can't <laughs> imagine competing with 60,000 people for only 35 positions. One of your postdocs, Aditi, we were on call actually recently together she's doing wonderfully but she mentioned to me she said do you know how hard that school is to get into just <laughs> like people here don't understand how difficult it was so along those lines we know that it, it is harder as an international graduate a lot of times people do extra years of research or they come and do another degree because they want to come to the U.S. to get further training and then they often even redo years of residency or redo a fellowship before they can finally practice here in the states can you discuss that experience of coming here? Any words of advice you would have for other people in your situation? It is a long journey coming from another country to practice here. And it's now even harder. I know that residency spots for international medical graduates are really hard to come by. And I don't know how this taking away scores for step one is going to affect that because that was one of those features that at least made you comparable to U.S. medical graduates. I remember my mentor who I, I was telling you about, he was a renowned figure in international research around diabetes. He was the physician for the prime minister of India at that time. And he wrote me letters of recommendation that it didn't matter here because nobody knew him. So you have to spend that extra time working with people in the United States so that you could get those letters of recommendation. I uh, was fortunate that I didn't do residency in India and come and repeat that because I made up my mind pretty early that this is what I want to do. And going to Harvard and doing public health was really helpful. I was able to spend some time with one of the faculty in cardiovascular health there. My parents would have never been able to afford sending me there. I got a full scholarship, which was, again, a huge stroke of luck, if I may say, that it helped out that my application was competitive for a surgical residency then. Persistence is key. You just have to make your application stand out. You have to figure out what is it that would help you show that you are hardworking, productive, work with mentors here, get publications out, build this sort of a research portfolio and do well in your tests. And after that, I think I, I applied to 75 schools at that time to just get seven residency interviews. I think the numbers are even more dismal right now. It was also like setting your ego aside a little bit. I mean, you're so academically accomplished in your own country and then you come here and suddenly nobody knows what you are capable of. You just have to believe in yourself and set yourself up for that marathon especially in the time of COVID. And as we all know, it's been more difficult for folks to travel to the U.S. to either participate in away rotations or to network at meetings and present at meetings, which was another great platform to show your work, to meet you know, program directors, meet chairman, division chiefs. With regards to vascular surgery, the recent NRMP data reveals that in the last five years, only 0.05% of the matched integrated vascular surgery residents 
are graduates of international medical schools, which is much lower than in other specialties. Yeah, I didn't know vascular surgery was even a field in India. It was a cardiothoracic and vascular surgery rotation combined, and you basically saw cardiac surgery at that time. I didn't know vascular surgery existed till I started my intern year, and that's how I got really sucked in, I would say. It was just the magnitude of the operations, the patients, the longitudinal care, the ability to operate in almost any part of the body. And the endovascular work was picking up and it was amazing to see the technology that could reduce a long six hour bypass operation into a one hour recanalization. So I think outreach to actually show what vascular surgery is would also be helpful. I wonder if one step to do that would be offering scholarships to either current medical students of medical schools outside the U.S. I think things like the SVS, the vascular annual meeting would be great, but sometimes even a smaller platform like a regional meeting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think maybe liaising with certain medical schools that tend to have more of their graduates interested in away rotations. For my med school, there, there was no mechanism at that time to actually do any sub-I's in the United States. But then a few years later, there were some official channels set up with, I think, Mayo Clinic and I believe Cleveland Clinic that people could come and do those away rotations as part of their med school curriculum. To shift a little bit and talk about diversity and inclusion in vascular surgery, there's only about 18.6% faculty who are women versus 81.4% faculty are men. So which challenges do you think are unique to women or women of color or persons of color within vascular surgery? Cardiothoracic and vascular surgery have been one of the last few remaining surgical specialties to embrace women and people of color. We actually presented some data at Academic Surgical Congress. One of the undergraduates I was mentoring did this entire review of moderators, panelists, society, leadership across 16 different national societies. And cardiac and vascular were the lowest in terms of representation of women compared to other surgical specialties. Why is it that women and people of color are embracing other surgical specialties as opposed to cardiac and vascular? And I think that speaks to what they see, culture, leadership, people who are program directors and division chiefs. And when they go to meetings, who is the face of that specialty. I just did a chapter for the JVS, Journal of Vascular Surgery, DEI supplement that uh, I co-authored with uh, Young Urban. And we looked at the trends for women joining vascular surgery residency. So we initially saw a peak around like 40%, but now it's down, declining slightly again, more than the 35% range. I don't know if that'll hold or that may go down, but the society has certainly taken notice and there's more efforts to promote the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But it has to be sustained. There was this push within the society a few years ago about DI efforts, and that's when the Women's Leadership Grant was established. I actually got that grant while I was at Emory. But then since then, there, there hasn't been really any systematic changes. We've only had one woman president of the SVS, Dr. Freischlag, in the last 75 years of the society's existence. People take notice. And the current generation, they are not just, and rightfully not just, satisfied with tokenism or platitudes. If change has to happen, it has to be active. It has to be without subtext or any sort of caveats that, oh, change takes time or things change slowly. Things change slowly so that you are comfortable with change. That's the excuse people 
empower make. You know, change can happen overnight if you want it to. So if we want to attract more women and people of color, we have to be proactive about it. There's no question. And it needs to be embraced wholeheartedly from the top down. The uh, Harvard Business Review published a very interesting article recently about how to be a better ally. One thing that um, is important is that we need allyship, not just from people who maybe look like us or come from our similar backgrounds, but people who are in the majority and people who uh, otherwise wouldn't necessarily gain anything from a personal standpoint by advocating for their peers. The most effective form of allyship comes from when leaders set the tone. And currently, most of the leadership in vascular surgery is white males. So it is important to have their buy-in as well as allyship because the change would get accelerated. Setting the right tone has a lot of downstream effects. Women vascular surgeons have on average less publications than men, 42 versus 65. And the disparity is even greater when you look at the number of times that women surgeons have been cited by others. They are cited less than half the times as men and their papers have been cited, 655 versus 1,387. So as a very well-established and prolific researcher, can you comment on this? Have you noticed any differences in how your research may be received compared to your male counterparts? Definitely. I, as a reviewer, from time to time get papers that talk about things that I have already studied and published on and never cite my work. And I have to send those reviews back to say that, okay, you're not the first study to show this. And I try and point out my publications and other colleagues of mine who have done similar research. So personally, yes, I see it. And with regards to the citations for or H-index, if you think about what are the kinds of papers that get most cited, they are either seminal clinical trials or novel industry work that is being done, and guidelines. Those are the three major groups of publications that get the most cited. If you look at guideline writing committees, even for Journal of Vascular Surgery and Society of Vascular Surgery, for the last 20 years, it's been 98% male authorship. In the aortic guidelines, there's one woman. I think there were a couple of guidelines that came out recently that had more than one woman, but for the longest time, there was either no or simply one female author in those guidelines. The clinical trials, they tend to be a highly tight-knit group of people who are working together. And if you look at major investigators within the aortic space, they're all white male. And it's very hard to break through into that group, honestly. And I'm going to be very frank. I know of women who have been dissuaded from doing aortic work, have been redirected towards venous work and other forms of vascular work. Even though they are doing high volume amount of aortic work, they don't get invited by industry to come and talk at events, invited by industry to participate in industry-funded clinical trials. And it's a systematic issue. They're not being made the director of the aortic program. Time and time again, we're seeing this phenomenon of manals. They keep inviting uh, men to come and talk uh, as experts. There's this expectation that people who are available 24-7 are the ones who get opportunities. And guess who is available 24-7? People who have partners at home taking care of things and they are in the hospital and available to dine with the industry folks and pick up phone calls at any hour of the day. That, that culture of surgery in general promotes this kind of behavior. If we were to just be more thoughtful in our approach in terms of 
figuring out panelists, moderators, speakers for all sorts of events within surgery and not expecting people to just drop things at the last minute to plan ahead. I think you would get a much more diverse selection of candidates to choose from. I will like to just take a moment to set the record straight. The average H index was 9.5 for female vascular surgeons in comparison to 13.7 for male vascular surgeons. But if you correct for years since initial board certification, women actually had a higher H index per year in practice at 1.32 versus uh, 1.02. So I think the argument that women don't publish as much and therefore are not cited as much or don't have as many publications listed on their resume is... is uh, not necessarily based in evidence. Frailty is a relatively new area of study in the surgical world, but one that you have shown to have big implications. Can you tell us how you began uh, your research in frailty? Coming out of residency and fellowship, I often heard this phrase that it's all about patient selection. And people talk about it as if it's like this mystical superpower that experienced surgeons have that they can pick out which patients are going to do well and which are not. And to me, as a person who loves data and stats, I was like, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And I got introduced to the concept of frailty at Emory through uh, Viraj Master and uh, Ken Ogan. They had just published their work, came across some frailty indices built within the National Surgical Quality Improvement Database. With the NSQIP, the challenge was that frailty measure just only had comorbidities primarily because that's what was captured within that database. And something in my mind was like, frailty is something beyond comorbidities. We need to keep exploring this. And then I got connected with one of my vascular surgery mentors from University of Nebraska, Jason Johanning, and he had piloted this tool, Risk Analysis Index. And with my background of trying to work with geriatrics and figure out what exactly frailty is, I knew that there were like these two big camps. One is this phenotypic model of frailty, which measures grip strength and walking speed, whereas the other model is this accumulated deficit model. And the RAI or the risk analysis index that he had developed, it fit into that accumulated deficit model. And I could map it to five different domains of frailty, like nutrition was captured there, cognition, function, comorbidities, as well as social status. So that was more of a rounded out view of frailty rather than just comorbidities, which you think about it, comorbidities are fixed. Especially if you think of cardiovascular patients, any of our patients is multimorbid. Three or more comorbidities is defined as multimorbidity in geriatrics. Our vascular patients typically have three or more comorbidities. So the discrimination of such a tool that relies on comorbidities is not going to be high for patients in the vascular uh, surgery space. So that's how I started working on the risk analysis index. We validated it in larger data sets. We then validated it prospectively in the University of Pittsburgh medical system. And we've shown that patients who are frail, whether they have surgery or they don't have surgery, still have very comparable mortalities at one and two years. So are we really helping them with surgery? Are we actually declining their health status, sending them into an institutionalization phase? Those are important questions to look at in the future. I remember medical school being taught the eyeball test and how <laughs> physicians pride themselves so much and how good they are at being able to just quick second glance at a patient from across the room being like, okay, that patient's sick or not sick. And while it may work for emergent situations, we know from your research and from research by others that we're not that good at assessing how they're going to do perioperatively, especially in the geriatric population. I've been thinking about this recently because when I started 
couple months ago here at Kaiser in Portland, there's been a lot of changes in the institutions across the country in the past year, given the COVID-19 pandemic. And we've transitioned a lot to virtual visits via phone or via video visit, both in the preoperative and postoperative setting. I've noticed that a lot of patients, I'll see them preoperative via video visit. They'll see the preoperative clinic via video visit. And the first time anyone actually lays eyes on them in person is the day of surgery. And uh, for the most part, this is great. But I've had a couple of patients recently who are elderly. And then these patients often can't connect virtually via video because they can't use the technology. So you end up defaulting to it by phone. Usually it would be accompanied to the clinic by their daughter or their son who would have to drive them there. And often they give the better history about the patient when you ask them, are you losing weight? Are you eating? Are you getting around doing your ADLs? I've lost that component in my preoperative workup with patients. Your work is showing that we should be incorporating some sort of frailty assessment into a lot of our clinic workflows. Right now, if I do video visits, I don't have an MA or a nurse helping me where they can administer a set of questionnaires. What is your recommendation or advice to me on how I might at least identify patients in the preoperative saying that I should take the extra step to have them come physically to the office because it is worth that assessment in person? That's a great question, Vivian. That was some of the motivation behind developing the RAI as a 14-point questionnaire. It could be administered over the phone, and it could be done by your MA or your nurse. And it, it takes 30 seconds to administer once you start using it, get facile with it. The biggest thing I would say that if you couldn't do the full assessment and you didn't have a red cap tool or a phone tool to actually put that in, I would say from... My experience, the functional status is the biggest piece that is predictive. And every month I see some study coming out that says preoperative functional status is associated with poor postoperative XYZ, whichever outcome you talk about. And that is the biggest piece for older adults that seems to prognosticate. If they don't have functional status limitations, then the other portions of their frailty assessment does become more important, like presence of disseminated cancer or recent weight loss. But half of the people who have any sort of functional limitation also have cognitive decline. So that functional assessment question actually picks up that subgroup of people who may have functional and cognitive limitations. So if you were to do a super short five-second assessment, that's the one thing I would ask. Are they able to independently walk, eat, bathe, move around the house? If you find any sort of doubt there that they need assistance, then I think those people need a second look. And that's where it shouldn't be the purview of a few to recognize which patients will do poorly, like you said, the eyeball test. If we make it like a vital sign, if we make it part of the vocabulary across healthcare systems, it would be so much more useful. A, you would be able to longitudinally measure if this is this patient declining. Your primary care physicians or your referring providers who are sending you patients will then be speaking the same language as you. They would know that this patient is frail and say that the surgeon will discuss surgery with you, whether it is going to be useful for you or not. The next step in this field is integration of frailty assessments routinely in the electronic medical record, because that's the biggest holdup right now for people to adopt it. If you're working on your Epic or your Cerner screen and you can't readily get that information, it's never going to change behavior. It's never going to get incorporated. 
within clinical workflow. I think for our younger listeners, especially the medical students and junior residents who maybe have a little bit more time to spend with patients, asking just basic questions like, hey, how do you get around? Who makes your meals or who helps you with the grocery shopping? If you assume that they are being assisted with those things, then when they're not requiring assistance, oh, I do it all myself. That's a a pleasant surprise, but that way they don't feel embarrassed that, oh, hey, somebody else pays my bills or uh, Meals on Wheels comes to my house. I think by putting our patients at ease to disclose those things is important, especially I think for certain populations who were very high functioning in the past. This topic came up in some of the questions that were fed through um, the Audible Bleeding folks. You are a site PI for several trials as well as the PI for the PAUSE trial, which you designed. And it is my understanding that you may be the first woman who designed that type of trial in the US. How did you go about breaking the glass ceiling? It's a natural progression of your research. You learn from building blocks. As a health services researcher, for me, building blocks were learning biostatistics, epidemiology, understanding study design, and taking existing data sets and formulating research questions and answering them. But secondary data, it can only go so far. There are limitations of how that data is collected, what purpose it is built for. So if you really want to answer a bigger question or solve a problem, You need to start thinking about how do I craft or study? And once you start um, down that road, it's important to build these multidisciplinary bridges. It is important to learn how to be a cog in the big wheel of the clinical trial pathway, because it's not just you who's doing the work anymore. It's a a group of people from regulatory uh, work to the research coordinators to the grants people who manage the money to your the overall PI of the study and how each site contributes to that work. When you're given that opportunity, you take it and you do a good job in terms of making sure that you adhere to the protocols. You learn about a lot of things once you start doing clinical trials in terms of IRB, regulatory stuff, financials. How do the contracts get managed? Once you get a couple of trials going, you can build that infrastructure so that more people then approach you for doing more clinical trials because you've been successful in recruiting patients for others. So that's how you build your portfolio. The PAUSE trial is a health system intervention trial. I've done so much work on frailty assessment and how that is associated with adverse outcomes. But at this point, the field really needs to move towards what do we do about these frail patients? So that was the motivation for the PAUSE trial. So we've designed a multidisciplinary intervention that we are going to cluster randomize at three different VA sites. And we're going to see if frailty screening is effective in reducing overall mortality, as well as some other secondary endpoints like rehospitalizations and non-home discharges. And then we're going to do cost-benefit uh, analysis of whether this um, makes sense for the VA system in, in general, because if it does, then it could become uh, sort of a national standard. So you've had a very busy academic career and you raised a family, you've done other things in the time. Can you tell us how you balance this? <laughs> Poorly. <laughs> it, it's a struggle. It's the culture of surgery that you have to be available and doing things at all hours of the day. That was really hard to shake off. My daughter is five years old now and I am thankful for her presence in my life because it has made me more efficient. It has made me prioritize. It has made me realize things that are not important. (laughs) And it has taught me the value of time. Like I hardly check my emails after 5 p.m. So evening time is family time. If 
something is important, people will find me. I have realized that. And if it's not important, it'll get answered in normal business hours the next day. So setting boundaries and realizing that you can't keep running at a hundred uh, all the time. The surgical career, academic career is a marathon. You got to pace yourself. When you come out of residency and fellowship, you feel like you need to keep operating at that pace. But the truth is you don't. Now is the time to just figure out who you are, what you want to be, how you want your life to look like. And it doesn't have to be somebody else's version. It, I still want to do a lot in my career, but I need to be healthy enough to keep that going and to you know, do the things I love and mentor. That is one of my favorite parts of um, being an academic surgeon is the ability to train and mentor the next generation. And you need to have time for those people. You can't mentor effectively if you're not around, if you don't know what's going on in people's lives. And you can't expect the teams you lead to work at your pace. I may be very good at getting things done expeditiously, but if, if I make my team work at that pace, they will burn out and I will not have a team anymore. So to realize that you have to have effective functioning teams when you're leading a division, you have nurses and techs and nurse practitioners, other surgeons, all of them have different priorities, different needs. And to understand that your role is actually to help them be at their best. And that may mean that you need to slow down and adjust to their pace. About a quarter of physicians undergo divorce at some point, and even higher surgeons have about a one-third rate of divorce. Do you have any advice for anyone who might be feeling like they need to take that step and how to deal with it afterwards? It's a huge commitment we ask of our significant others. And if you are not in a relationship where you feel supported or you're not able to live to your fullest potential, it, it's hard to reconcile with that fact. For me, the last two years have been some one of the hardest period of my life, learning to go through this significant life event, learning to be a single parent, and then the pandemic hitting on top of it. It, it just was like this perfect storm. And I have to be honest, I, I thought that I might have to quit academic surgery. I, I really did. But that's where this importance of mentorship and sponsorship, I think, comes in. That the more I talked about it with people, I realized that so many of us, like the numbers that you quoted, they're staggering. A lot of us go through significant life events, not just a divorce, but death of a loved one, death of a child. Like people have been through hell in the course of their careers. And it's in those times that you realize the resilience uh, in yourself and in your social support and structure. I was very lucky to be in a work environment that you know believed in me and my potential and that just one change in my circumstance was not going to define what I'm capable of. They gave me the space, they gave me the support to deal with this and kept giving me the opportunities as they came along for leadership, for heading new committees, task forces, writing assignments. My boss basically told me that I will keep asking you, you tell me if this is something you want to do or not. If you are in a situation where you don't have that kind of support within your own institution, you may have to look outside to see if there are other people across the country who could support you. Life stressors like these, a job change, a, a significant life event, they are huge sources of burnout and depression and um, suicide. And so it's important for us to recognize when people 
around us are going through this to show empathy. A lot of people go through what you're going through. There is a village that will support you. You need to find it to get through that time. When I was initially starting to figure out how am I going to do this, I used the, the Covey's Quadrants, if you guys are familiar with that. It's a tool in leadership. You divide things into important, urgent, important, not urgent, not important, urgent, not important, not urgent. And you figure out how do you get the not important stuff off your plate. Like consoles <laughs> you in the ER. Like, yeah. <laughs> you start like mentally cataloging everything in categories. Okay. If, is this, if it's important, urgent needs to find, happen right now, you'll figure it out. If it's important and not urgent, can somebody else do it? The so delegation is key. And figuring out the not important stuff, like immediately get that off your things to do so that you keep making most of your time that you have with your family and keep your sanity. Thank you for being so candid. One thing that I've heard from either my co-chiefs when we were chief residents um, or friends around the country who maybe have young children, whether they're a single parent home or they have two parents in the home, is they're away from home a lot. They worry about missing out on things and whether or not their child is going to be upset or, or resent them for pursuing a career. My mom was a single mom for quite some time when I was young and she was a biochemist and did drug design. And I actually remember sitting in the lobby of uh, Upjohn, which was a pharmaceutical company in our hometown with the uh, security guard because she had uh, she had some experiments to check on and it was Saturday and that was just how it was. I will say I don't remember the soccer games that she missed or the basketball games that she missed. What I remember the most is is how powerful she was and and how perfect she was in in my eyes and how how truly she sacrificed for me and and pursued her career as an example for me and and for my younger sister later on in life. So I would say to all the single parents or parents who work demanding jobs is that a soccer game here or there will be okay. But uh, I think the long-term example of pursuing your dreams and, and pursuing something that you've dedicated so much time and effort to was really the lasting thing, at least, at least from a child's perspective. As we bring things to a close, I do want to leave you with your legacy that you left behind at Emory. So after your departure, Tatiana Shadid went into vascular and is now graduated from MGH. Obviously, I followed in her footsteps. And this year, we actually have three women in the fourth year who are going into vascular surgery. Two are going the traditional fellowship route. And yeah, we did a four plus two. Thank you for saying that. But I think there was already that substrate of vascular leadership and Dr. Dodson and, and Dr. Jordan. They knew the importance of diversity and they promoted that. I'm glad to see all that interest. I think Dr. Allaby right now at Emory, she's fantastic. And I think the other female surgical role models at Emory have been super strong. So it's a testament to the culture at Emory that recognized it and embraced it. So great job. Dr. Dawson was the catalyst for starting this podcast about women in surgery. You know, he was the first person to share with me that if you have one daughter, your chance of ever ending yes. up in a nursing home is 20%. And if you have two daughters, then it is 0%. I know this too. Somebody. He told my parents that you have three daughters. You will never, ever end up in a nursing home. Thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thanks for joining us for this special interview co-hosted by the Audible Bleeding Podcast. Check out their other episodes for more resources on vascular surgery. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview.